We're all shaking hands, making friends, new alliances here on Vigor, please. And it's Trip at War 5. My name is Joseph. Hey, it's not an episode review podcast tonight. It's a retirement party. Dave Livingston, I'm looking at you. I'm your co-host, Peter. Peter, before we get into this excellent and history-rich episode of Star Trek for both, uh, we'll call them IC and OOC reasons, I actually wanted to have a little contemporaneous talk to you about some things that are happening in the nerd space. Would that be okay? Yeah, let's do it. And by the way, if you've no interest in hearing about how bad the Echo television show is on, on Disney Plus, 10 minutes. Yeah, skip it like 10, 15 minutes. And we'll we'll, we'll be talking 10, about Star Trek. We're going to do the 10 minute hate here, all right? All right. That should be what this segment's called, by the ten, way. The 10 minute hate. At the that's what it was in uh, Warms us up, right? Like this, we have to have something to talk about that's negative because these episodes of Star Trek are very good. <laughs> so like, if we have to get it out of our system somehow. I am a huge fan of the Daredevil television show that was on Netflix maybe seven, eight years ago. A decade ago? Yeah, like a long time ago now. But like that show was amazing, was it not? It was pretty good. Charlie Cox, great Daredevil. Well cast all around. By the way, so yeah, we're pushing 10 years. (sighs) Jesus. Mm. Um, And... It was a really cool concept. It was well executed. It fit into the Marvel universe in a way that worked, even if it never really had an impact on it. And, you know, you just had tremendous fight scenes, some of the best I've ever seen on television program uh, in there. And it really elevated the idea of what a Marvel product could be and then but at the same time made it shrunk it down and, and on a low enough budget that you could do it in a television show. Right. I like the way you called it a, a street. Yeah. Street level Marvel, you know, yeah. like instead and of that's my appeal to it was that, Hey, at the top end, you've got the Avengers flying around, knocking buildings down. And then you've got a, a small TV show about a guy who becomes a criminal overlord by muscling, construction contracts to fix all the damage wrought around New York, which is also one of my favorite parts about uh, Spider-Man Homecoming was that. Yes. Yeah. That that Vulture is just a contractor. (laughs) The contractor that, you know, alien tech. Yeah. Well, that, you know, uh, uh, Tony Stark kicked him out of the business to clean up a mess that Tony Stark made. and, 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 the problems you create with even the slightest actions like that. That was genius. Um, But yeah, it was a solid ass TV show. And, you know, Disney saw really, I think, I think Daredevil might've just been the origin story of Disney plus because Disney saw all the money and success that Netflix was making with Daredevil and their other Marvel properties and said, no mine. And I'm going to take my ball and I'm going to go home. Which Only is I'm per- building a new house over there, and that's that's where we're gonna go. I think it's you're precisely waters. right. I think the success that they had with that show, and that it was so widely watched, and it was all going to Netflix, and they were just getting you know whatever their contract was to to create the content, to license it, wasn't enough. And they saw that they could they could have their cake and eat it too. That's how good that show was. And they thought they could have their cake and eat it too. Echo might be the most interesting thing I have watched in some time, not because anything that happens in it is worthy of discussion in any way, shape or form from a plot perspective, but from a 
as someone who really likes to take apart Hollywood and production drama and the creative process and directors and producers and writers and cinematographers and fight choreographers. Um, it is the most complete and absolute failure of a product I've ever seen actually commercially released. And in some ways is the perfect end to the story that daredevil began because it's trying to be season one of daredevil and failing on every conceivable level. And it also has Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio in it playing Daredevil and Kingpin. So oh, it's really? The, yeah, there's a symmetry to this that's unbelievable. What, so is this just a Daredevil or is this something else? So Echo, if you don't know, which I presume you probably don't, was a C to D tier Marvel character that was a alternate love interest for Matt Murdock in the comics in like the mid 2000s. So she was basically a uh, spicy Latina Electra, you know, like Electra was like the the semi superpowered peer love interest for Daredevil, but they wanted to have another one. So Echo was like a hand ninja that had was deaf, and her superpower is basically Taskmaster's superpower, I guess, like being able to copy other people's fight abilities, and that's you know how she wound up like working with and eventually banging Matt Murdock in the comics, and they decided to. Sp- because you know you're one of your your female super heroic characters in that sort of tier, that street tier, to spin that into their own show. And like she showed up in like the Hawkeye show, which I did not watch at all at some point or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, the idea of Daredevil and Kingpin showing up in an Echo show makes sense with that context, but of course it. It, it existing before they actually even got the Daredevil show off the ground is insane. Um, which means Daredevil shown up in uh, Spider-Man, No Way Home, She-Hulk, She-Hulk and this. <laughs> like, Charlie Cox was really one of those paychecks, man, because, like, he's not covering himself in any glory. I guess Spider-Man was okay, but... Spider-Man was great. Yeah, Spider-Man was great. He's actually perfect cameo for that, but... Mm-hmm. They really wanted to do Girl Boss... Daredevil. And they could not have fucked it up worse. The writers couldn't write anything resembling something compelling or or not openly political. The actress can't do fight scenes. She's not physically capable of them. Uh, the cinematographers and the stunt performers didn't know how to sell the fight in any way when she's involved because she's so bad. So everything just looks sloppy. How many episodes is this? Six. Did you watch them all? No. No, I couldn't. I mean, you're get saying all no to like exonerate yourself, like you are wise. But I, I might I, I, though. I'm not. I'm not saying that I won't because I, I want. I, I think you're going to have to watch it now because I don't think I've ever seen a product more destined for a tax impairment write-off in my life. I'm shocked it was released. It's that bad. I'm shocked that Aquaman two was released. Yeah, it Oof. is. Oof. And again, I, I don't. I don't believe that it's the superhero genre is uh, is fatigued. I just think there's so much bad product out there and that these studios, Disney specifically, has been operating under the false pretense that you can put out anything. And if it is a comic book movie, that it will make money and that they, it's taking them a very long time to learn the lessons. I want to go back to the point uh, to the part where you did not already cancel your Disney Plus subscription. 
<laughs> it's my wife's Disney Plus subscription, and she maintains it so we can watch The Simpsons. Thank you. I guess so, man. Like, <laughs> that's you it. Are it's thin, literally it's the there. only person I know at this point that still has that Disney Plus. I mean, there's some stuff in the back catalog that we really like because they've got all the Fox stuff too. So sure. we we get we do watch some content on there. We don't watch anything that would be resembling new. And I you guess know, I, I I bring this up also partially because I want to shout my wife out. Actually, now that I think of it, because I remember a decade ago when something called comics gate started where you saw the mar the comics industry writ large kind of be taken over by woke intersectional feminism and i remember thinking and saying because stevie was of the opinion this is bad this is going to metastasize into all of entertainment you can't allow this woke garbage into the door and i thought oh no that's not going to happen no one cares about comics so it's a perfect place to sort of allow this to occur because it's not a place where anyone's making any money. Uh, the legacy IPs already have reams of content you can take and use to turn into movies for in infinity years. But if you want to like, you know, improve your ESG score or whatever, you know, or your political standing, um, allowing that to happen in a place where profits don't matter, seem to make a lot of sense. And boy was I wrong. And she was right because the end result is echo. And Echo is everything that happened to the comics industry distilled into this fine, perfect, turgid essence that you have to see to believe. And 10 minutes. We're back into Star Trek. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thank you for indulging that. I appreciate and it. And the audience. The 10 minute hate. Yes. So uh, what episode of Star Trek do we watch this no. week? Which was not hateful and very good. Come on, man. We got we to gotta talk David Livingston. Well, we will, but let's. Oh, oh my the episode that would have been a good going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I apologize. Episode four. No, Jesus. Season four, episode 13, Friday the 13th. See how it's going to work out for us. Uh, first aired February 4th, 2005. Teleplay Judith and Garfield Reed Stevenson. And uh, we had one of our listeners point out these guys have had a couple solid wins under their belt. They have. They got a lot They're of bangers that come, too. Well, uh, apparently where these guys really made an impact was in the novel game. And which, which made so much sense when I heard it. Like, these guys are too good at this to not have been spending a lot of time writing Star Trek. Did, did he clarify if they had already written a bunch of novels up to this point and then they got into the TV game or that they had started doing these TV things and like were like, hey, you know, we really like Enterprise and we want to keep this going even after it got canceled? I'm going to take a look real quick. Um, by the way, the episode's named United. I can't remember and nor can I quickly find in the group, in the Facebook group, because I know that was pointed out in the comment. Um, if the books came first and the episodes came first, I recall that it might have been the books came first. And so that lent to them being effective at this. Let's see if their memory alpha has anything to say about this. The couple had already written several fully licensed reference books on the subject of Star Trek previously prior to becoming officially involved with the live action franchise. There you Let go. That soak in. Coming through. You got Matt Manny Cotto running this thing. Clearly Manny Cotto uh, had some great ideas about Star Trek Enterprise. And sure did. Who would have ever thought that, hey, you know what? If uh, you're trying to write episodes where the people 
writing the material give a shit and they have bothered to look at anything prior. Let's get some super neckbeard authors who are living and breathing this stuff and what oh, the entire process that goes into writing a novel. And let's let these what's essentially super fans at that point try and run this stuff. Uh, story by Manny Cotto. And it's been a while since we've seen a teleplay and a story credit in Enterprise. So very interesting there. Normally that story by uh, was uh, the Bran and Rick Berman booth, right? And there it is, directed by David Livingston. The last David Livingston episode. Not the last you and I will will discuss because he's got all of his DS9 episodes left. But the last from his uh, from his perspective. What a career this man had. He did 62 episodes of Bourbon Era Trek. And you and I did the math. And that means he's responsible for around 12% of all of Bourbon Era Trek as a director. Here's some more math I want you to do. Uh, what does 62 episodes of Star Trek written, directed translate into children's college tuitions <laughs> <laughs> one presumes enough right <laughs> like this man worked this man worked hard i don't know if he's got the record uh in terms of how could he not no okay i'm sorry there he does have the record he is the most prolific director in the franchise full this stop this guy is the jeffrey combs of star trek directors <laughs> <laughs> he sure is and uh, it's an up and down thing. His biggest series was Voyager. Um, it it was rough going there at the beginning. The cloud emanations, Oof. Oof. Uh, learning curve, Oof. non sequitur. Um, you know he he well he he had he had a bad time. Okay, at the beginning, he eventually did turn out some hits, some Voyager hits, Warlord. Love it. We liked that one a Those lot. Those nose tubes, the blood, uh, sexy we, vampire cat kiss. Indeed, uh, we liked uh, infinite regress. Uh, we liked in the flesh. Mm. That was it was Robert Beltran's sex machine. Uh, mm. Author, author, flesh and blood. So some of the late hits. He also did Spirit Folk. <laughs> you know, he also did Alice Trash Bag Tom. So I guess if you're going to do 62 episodes of, of Star Trek, you're going to do good and bad, right? There's just no way around it. Well, here's what you can say about David Livingston. The guy, his fingerprints was not excellence or, uh, you know, garbage. It's not like I could go back through any of those episodes that were bad and be like, this was a disjointed piece of shit with, um, production holes and bad blocking or whatever. Oh yeah. He was a worker. He knew how to make a episode of star Trek. His he the house style. He helped define the house style. He was the fucking he, house and he executed on it. His fingerprint was, I can take a script and I can get these guys to put on a show and I can do it in some cases, the point where they have to go back to the writer's room and say, make more material because David banged this thing out too fast. And that's how you end up with, read overclocking phasers and what's essentially bonus content. Um, and that's something we don't really talk about. There is a lot more enterprise than you or I see because I don't have DVDs 
uh, but like almost all of these episodes have deleted scenes, right? Like they were heavy in the DVD game here. So it's possible he even directed more stuff than we've ever even really discussed. The guy was a production powerhouse and he wasn't supercharging what you got out of the, the actors where, you know, Robert Duncan McNeil or maybe uh, Frakes could. But he'd put out a solid product. And I think that just says consummate professional where it's like, whether it's a turkey script or a banger, uh, you're going to get the same level of efficiency out of me and we're going to get this thing done. And he's not an hourly employee, but this guy was a company man. I forget, he was fooling around with um, Kate Mulgrew, Kate Mulgrew in the beginning. It was he had probably not, not coincidental in terms of why you got so much Voyager work. We reflected on that before. And the guy also, He's certainly ended his career here on a high note, uh, not just with this episode, but let's take a look at everything he did from like season three onward impulse for your favorite episode of season three, yeah. proving ground. One of impulse my impulse two. That was wildly different. Was impulse. Was a horror though, movie. Yeah. A horror movie. Wildly different in style. And for the guy I just said has basically no style. He is the vanilla flavor of Star Trek. Like, again, I think that's when we were like, you know, he was he. He sees the end of the the the, the light at the tunnel, and uh, he's trying to you know make those marks. He did but Proving Ground. He did the Council. He did Borderlands, uh, Kirishara, and of course this episode United in season four. So he did great Enterprise work, but I don't want to let him off the hook. He also did Precious Cargo. Can I take the good with the bad? But well, this was the good. Great. This was the good. Do you think if you sat down with David Livingston and tried to talk to him about Star Trek, he knows the first goddamn thing? Well, he's an older guy, so I imagine he might be quite reflective, actually, as people tend to be when they've kind of like done with their working career and they enjoy reflecting upon it. I've never seen this guy do an interview or anything, but he seems to me like, all right, get in, say the stuff on the lines. Cool. Uh, We're observing our styles, but I feel like, hey, man. What do you think happened to the Kazon in the post Voyager economy of the Delta Quadrant? Like, <laughs> I don't oh, think look, this is going to be. It looks like he did an interview uh, just this last year at uh, Trek Talks 2. So um, he's he's been uh, on the circuit a little bit, at least talking about his Star Trek experience. Um, but yeah, he, he definitely looks like he he's in the. Uh, his golden years. We'll Absolutely. say that. So good for him. Good for him. You know what, David hats off to you. You made some of some very entertaining star Trek that I have enjoyed tremendously through the years. And I'm glad this is the last one you did because it's a good one. This episode is both like, this is, it's weird. This is kind of the end of the main plot line of this trilogy. Yet there's a whole nother episode after this that like, carries some of the plot on <laughs> and it's, it's it's you'll you'll know more once we start watching the next one uh the anr um what i mean by that but this is basically the end of the romulan like interference arc really uh and it's very good at paying off more of those crumbs we've been talking about of like what is this season trying to do in the limited amount of time it has available to them it's trying to demonstrate how the Federation came to be, how, what, what's human, how do humans make that happen? Right? Like there are, but they're the new kids on the block. You know, they're the less powerful than essentially all of their neighbors. 
so how, why, what, what occurs that leads to the formation of this interstellar superpower that dominates existence in the Milky Way galaxy for centuries to come? And what is Archer's role specifically in making that happen and how, um, who he knows and how he knows them. I wanted to have a conversation starting last episode because it was during Babel one's filming. I believe that, uh, the word came from on high that UPN was going to be canceling enterprise. And, uh, that makes United the first episode to film, after that announcement was made. So everybody sees exactly what is going to be happening here. And like, we've already discussed, like it's crazy that UPN even let them finish the season out. So just being like, cut our losses. You know, I, do we have viewership numbers on this stuff at this point? I wasn't going to talk about them until the end of the fourth season. Um, Cause you know, the third season they kept their, their, um, their viewers pretty strong. Um, let's take a look though. Let me, let me pull these up. Give me just a moment. The timing on UPN's cancellation is crazy in that here is a story about the first Starship Enterprise and the formation of the Federation of Planets, right? Mm-hmm. And for them to say, we're done with this ep- with this series, we are canceling that series the very episode that finally gets around to starting to tell the story about the formation of the United Federation of planets is fucking nuts. Like the, the cosmic timing on that, like there's Rick Berman and Bram Brown. Hey, what if the next show we do, what if we tell this history of the Federation? That's a great idea. You know, let's, let's do that. It's going to take you four seasons and 12 episodes to get around to it. And by the time you finally bring people around and say once upon a time and cancel season four began with 2.89 million viewers for Stormfront. Uh, it had gone up slowly and was peaked at, at this point on the augments. So, you know, I'm sure some Brent Spiner action there probably They're called Spiner films. Yes. Um, helped that, but it stayed steady. Uh, it was a, through the the Vulcan Tom Clancy trilogy, uh, dipped a bit for Daedalus and Observer effect. Babel one lowest rated uh, episode of the season in terms of viewership up to that point, 2.53 million. Uh, but it went back up after that into the threes. Uh, yeah, we're like, oh man, they're finally telling the fucking things that this story is supposed to be about. Yeah. Like you said, unconscionable that it took them this long to finally arrive at doing the story. Unconscionable. And they kind of like earned their cancellation as a consequence. And that's why this season, despite its greatness, is buried in the Trek canon in a way that no one ends up appreciating it. It's like a delivering a, 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 a you know, a, a, a dead project. I had a hard time with this episode in terms of note taking. It wasn't until I'd say a good 15 minutes in, I looked down at my page and I was like, I haven't written a goddamn. My first note in this, I, I think, picks up with Shran in the hospital talking to his girlfriend. Yeah, well, what's. I'm, 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 I'm just what's... saying, to this episode's credit, like, yeah, I just went right into Gross. watching it. And Gross. at no point was I like, Hmm, that's in, I need to make a note or, hey, here's something to bitch about. It was just like I sat down normally opening 
cold opens on Enterprise have been pretty weak, and it's like, eh, okay, whatever. This is just right into it. Let's have a moment also to appreciate Jeffrey Combs. Phenomenal actor. Uh, if if Observer Effect was a great demonstration of how good an episode of Star Trek could be when you just use your core cast and let them kind of like do their actor thing, and you're, you're just using all of your, your existing parts, um, this is what a solid role-playing guest actor can bring to the table. Like, you mentioned his scene with his girlfriend when he, she's in sickbay. Fuck, we, we've bitched about this before, but it's a perfect example. Years, years of Roxanne Dawson and Robert Duncan McNeil trying to create some approximation of chemistry with each other to have Tom and Bellana together, right? Years where it was just mostly nothing, occasionally a little something here and there. You get these two actors who are barely in this fucking show, right? Whose characters we we don't know very. We know Shran a little. We know his girlfriend way less. And they have one solid scene of interaction with each other that demonstrates the depth of a relationship. And it's better, 10 times better than anything you ever got with Tom and Bellana over the course of years. To be fair. He is having a emotional exchange with her while she is laying on her deathbed. And the one yeah. and only time mm-hmm. that Tom and Bellana, that Robert Duncan McNeil and Roxanne Dawson, and again, they're both individually great actors for whatever fucking reason, they just could not make it happen on screen. But the one time they could was Bellana laying on the table dying and Tom there saying goodbye to her. And I... I'm not trying to take anything away from uh, Jeff Combs or this lady, but I think in the book of accessible, like uh, Hollywood actor, emotional tricks, one one class, it's remember someone you loved who has died and now put yourself in that mind frame and talk to that person who is on the uh, TV set piece bed dying and make the emotion happen. Yeah, it's probably much easier to get there because everyone's suffered through loss for the most part. Everyone's got that story. And so you can just dig into that spot and get to that. But even with that in mind, I agree. That is the cheat codes of acting. Mm -hmm. Um, This is still so much better executed than even that scene was in, in, uh, in Voyager. What was it like operation annihilation or whatever it was? No, it was, uh, it's the one where they died. Fuck you, Potsy, is what it yeah, was. Yeah, fuck you, Potsy. <laughs> Pots, Potsy is Jigsaw. Course Oblivion. Course Oblivion. Great setup for this lady. Great just background um, story that they're able to, to pull out for her. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I'm curious if they started writing this episode and they're like, okay, so what happened in the last episode? All right, his girlfriend got shot with a gun, but no big deal. Well, what if it was a big a deal? Big deal. <laughs> what if it was the only deal? Uh, very briefly, teaser is extensive, action-packed, lots going on. Uh, the Romulans, who we found out are on Romulus, and they're doing this remote with somebody who's in like a Johnny they Mnemonic. They got Quest 17. Yeah, they're on the super same. trailer deck. <laughs> and there are they are remotely piloting this drone ship, trying to do Romulan shenanigans and getting everyone to hate each other. And 
Reed and Trip are on that ship trying to disable it. They have their buddy comedy adventure um, side quest again this week. Compare and, all that to Shuttlepod One. Yeah, I mean, this is so much better a version of what's, what they did in Shuttlepod One. I'll agree. As much as I do appreciate Shuttlepod One. Anytime um, Reed can be in scenes and I don't actively hate his ass. Great. And I feel like it's been a while <laughs> since I've really hated his ass. Like, yeah, season four Reed has been much more tolerable than season three, and it's because he doesn't have bullshit drama with Major Hayes. Yes, he's not assaulting coworkers, which is only cool if you're uh, seven nine, <laughs> beating <laughs> everybody up, biting Balana, punching Vorik, rightfully everything. Um, everything you're seeing out of this version of Reed, by the way, is a science guy or an engineering guy. This is not no. a security guy. This is a dude who should, for all intents and purposes, be wearing um, a blue burgundy. Uniform. He should be wearing a, a sign. Well, I get, you know, ops engineering. Uniform. And this is. is I think he's right? more I think he's more. Assi- I think your science officer. Science thing, guy, I think he should yeah. be wearing blue. It's always um, I think he. I think that's that's more what you, you get him away from the guns. And now this is a believable great character. Not great, but this this is a good character. Um, so they're in a pickle, and that is that they have determined that, hey, we are in a uh, a remote drone, and that kind of lights up Trip's eyes. And he's like, well, hey, if this thing's being remotely piloted, then there should be a way for us to pull the plug. That's what we're going to start doing. Um, let's uh, explore our surroundings. Let's, they're basically in an escape room. <laughs> That's the Romulan that that can be that that that's a decent Romulan escape room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we found it. That's yeah, a good, that's a good title. Uh, and meanwhile, the Romulans are attempting to muddy the waters of what's going on by having this, the drone ship start to look like Enterprise and attack a Rigelian scout ship and allowing it to, like, send off a distress call before they blow it up. So that's what happens in the teaser. And when we get back to uh, the action after the theme, uh, we have Archer talking to T'Pol and Mayweather saying, yeah, this thing happened. I just got notified by Starfleet Command. Now they're impersonating us, blowing ships up, and I'm supposed to be arrested and shit. We got to find That's a way to solve this problem. Two empires that have a standing warrants on John Archer. And I mean, you know, the Klingons, I kind of deserve it, but they're like, this is bullshit. <laughs> like, I didn't do this crime. <laughs> and uh, they, they come up with a plan, which is that Paul and Mayweather have determined that if they get this, get a sensor grid of a bunch of ships together, they can catch the Romulans. <laughs> Where have we heard this plan before? Hmm. Speaking of Brett Spine. David Livingston? No, he didn't direct that. He didn't direct much TNG. But, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it should sound familiar because this was uh, this was something Pack that... Yeah, detection grid. That uh, they pulled out before. No, it was a... That was a Duras episode. It was. It was the Romulan. It was the Klingon Civil War episode where they're trying to prevent the Romulans from crossing the neutral zone and involving that themselves. That pesky Sela. And they note they need 128 vessels to pull this caper off. And as they will relate later on, the human vessels, including the NX-02, whose engines are having trouble, can't make it in time to be effective. So the only people that they can pull this off with is if they combine Andorian, Tellarite, and Vulcan ships to create the mass necessary to catch this thing. 128 ships. Where are we going to, where's Starfleet going to get 128 ships? 
we couldn't even come up with two ships to defend all of Earth from the Zindian attack we knew was coming. Where are we going to get 128 ships? Great writing because this is perfect use of the Romulans, which is we just want to keep thing. We just want to be the CIA boogeyman. We we just want to keep everybody down. We want to keep everyone at odds. We're not trying to stop a super alliance. That's ridiculous. Why would there be a super alliance? We just want to make sure everybody keeps doing what they've been doing and it's petty bickering and infighting. And they're not targeting the humans at first. They don't really have any interest in them, right? Like they didn't have any interest in them in the Vulcan trilogy. They were using them as a method by which to have the Vulcans clamp down on themselves. But like that was all they weren't trying to do anything with them here. They're having the freaking uh, Tellarites and the Andorians trying to go to have them go to war. Rob- the humans are just blips on the map. Like these right. space monkeys just came out of nowhere. Who cares about them? We're here for the elder species, the Andorians. Yeah. The guys have been around a while. Who cares about these new dudes, you know? So th- that's great that the threat there is that they are trying to provoke war. Uh, that this is not just an earth problem like the Zindi was. This is for the, basically the entire quadrant and it's going to take everybody working together to thwart a common enemy. And And most importantly, because all three of these races don't have good relations with each other. The only one that they have good, all have good relations with are humans. And the, the memory alpha even points it out. Like how did the vault, how did the humans and earth become the center of the Federation? And it could be because they were the ones that showed up late enough that they have no existing beef with anyone and they can play mediator. And that's exactly what happens. And it's like the best parts of this episode is how did the humans wind up being the ones who started the Federation? What if we got to see that? I don't know. What if we cancel it once you get to see it? It was a uh, it was a forbidden fruit, and they finally took a bite out of it, and uh, UPN cast them out of Eden. Let's talk Tellerites real quick. As much as we can sit here and like love on Shran and you know uh, Suval, you know you've got these really great characters that are complex and fun to have on camera. And then there's just the fucking Tellerites that are, I don't know if they're just hindered by too much makeup. I think too, too little time. Like we've gotten to know the Andorians. We've gotten to know the Vulcans. The Tellerites are in Canon, the, the fourth or your uh, OG race in the Federation. And we've seen them one time as bounty hunters we've got a speed run to something. And so they kind of make them semi antagonistic rather than like having the time to build like a Shran like character or a Saval like character that like relates into the plot. All right. We, well, guess what? We're about to get canceled. So, uh, they're just going to be jerks. (laughs) And And that's really what they boil down to is just almost TOS level antagonistic, um, story elements go back to the bounty hunter episode. I thought it was really cool. The attachment that that guy had to his ship. Right. Which, uh, which can, which is apparent part of the Tellarite lore that they're all in talented engineers and, and they're all, none of that comes through whatsoever. And it's in fact, kind of counterintuitive that the Andorians somehow have such better ships that they just shit house the Tellarites at every inc- military encounter they have, which is what makes Shran's ship getting blown up by a Tellarite vessel, uh, 
key Shran into the fact that, you know, something's wrong. Tapau can only give, the Vulcans can only give 23 ships because apparently, I like how it, the impact of the Tom Clancy trilogy is still happening in the background. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, because uh, Tapal relates, um, uh, the, the, the ships don't have all have crews anymore. <laughs> people See, what people don't have jobs now because the, 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 the heads are rolling. Uh, well, that's, is it, or is it because, uh, so Sirach released the new Harry Potter book and everybody's calling off work to stay home and read it. And as a result, there's not enough people to man the ships. Well, they say that, it's political upheaval and like that there's cleaning of house, which of like, these are the people who are loyalists mm. to the old regime and they're, they're no longer being permitted to be in roles of, you know, military authority. That was actually my favorite line of the episode that, you have the once mighty Vulcan fleet uh, that dwarfed Starfleet that has arguably the best ships in the quadrant and the most capable uh, spacefaring uh, organization out there reduced to a meager 23 ships. So clearly putting great strain on Vulcan as a planet. Like if all of a sudden you had, probably a couple hundred ships and now you're only able to operate 23. Like what does that do to your trade routes? There's a lot of stuff that I'm sure is nowhere near TV levels of excitement to talk about. Like, but having your own foundation eroded by political upheaval and admission that the guys running that organization were corrupt and bad. Now you've got a need for, it it creates an opening for uh, a federation, a union to come in and fill the role of that old organization and provide logistics and support to your, um, your galactic culture now to bring in whatever the fuck, uh, high command used to be schlepping around for you. Like now's a really great time for Vulcan to be like, Hey, you know what? We do want to be a part of this. So, uh, the, this is very important plot point because is what ultimately leads to Archer having to sit down with a very, very angry, uh, Shran and his Whoops. his uh, Telluride counterpart to negotiate a settlement between the two of them to assist, which I thought was an excellently done scene. Uh, I guess before that is the the hospital scene when he's like, you know, we talk about the his girlfriend having been shot in the prior episode and she's only been winged, but we find out because the phase pistol was set to kill. And Andorians are apparently weak to something called phase uh, infections that that kill shot may still yet kill her. And that Flox is working overtime to try and save her life. In Berman era Trek and Roddenberry level Trek starkly contrasted to the shit in Picard where all of the and discovery too, where all of the phasers shoot projectiles with a kablam 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 when everybody's shooting silly string at each other out of guns, uh, it's either, Hey, I got it on tickle setting or it's the disintegrate setting that burns your skin off and then you explode. Right. Right. I I can burn away rock off the mountainside with, uh, the incinerate setting. So seeing that, Hey, yeah, sometimes you get hit, but the setting on the gun actually does matter. And just, 
this is a situation you've ne- I've never ever seen happen before where oh it's a flesh wound no big deal and then you know the screen turns around in a goofy like a uh, transition oh you're going to die we live in the future and unfortunately in this future we're not future enough where they've developed the next generation level blinky lights to flash on your skin and make you feel better and uh that's a great uh, set up a knockdown mechanic of everything should be fine. No, shit's real fucked up. And uh, she ends up unfortunately dying. And up to that point, Shran had really started warming up to the idea of like cooperating, especially with Earth. We're yes. going to pledge into this. He this has really good great. scenes with Archer where he's like, we're boys now, by the way. Like, we are officially friends. I'm not going to act like I'm your frenemy. Like, we've upgraded. We are now friends now. And, um, you know, that means, you know, I want to make sure that humans and Endorians actually maintain an alliance with each other that seems to be in the interests of both of our races. And he, he believes you, you believe that he believes that, right? Sure. And he has that scene with Archer where they're, you know, kind of commiserating over, over that. Um, he has the discussion with Grawl, the Tellerite, where Archer finally lays down the law on both of them, where they're yelling at each other. And he's just, I just, this might be Archer's best scene in the whole series so far, where he's like, if you're expecting me to stop either of you, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm done. I'm done trying to get in the middle of this, right? You've said what you've said, and you've decided to ignore what I've had to say so far. So I'm not going to stop you from fighting. And it gets their attention. I like that he's like, uh, I've, I've tried to appease you, and I've tried to appease you. Um, we're going to do a, option three, which is you guys start acting and respecting my culture, which is just mutual respect, and we try to have a big boy discussion here. Yeah, like, I'm tired of, of entertaining your arrogance, as a show of deference and I'm tired of act like uh, allowing you to be abusive because it's part of your culture. We're not doing these things anymore. <laughs> like, we're doing, we're going to do what humans do, which is we're going to fucking figure this out and work together to solve the fucking problem. Like adults. Are you guys ready to be adults now? That's what humans are good at. <laughs> it was a great scene for him. It shows him like, not just being uh, like very like, uh, subservient. It shows him taking the whip hand and saying, now it's going to be like the way I want it to be, or we're all going to have bigger problems and you both know it. So why don't you stop with this shit and get on the fucking train of dealing with your problems? It was um, kind of a head scratcher because, you know, we all saw what happened at that hostage scene from the last episode that the Tellerite ambassador's underling went completely unpunished for grabbing the gun and shooting the Andorian. Like I figured that guy would have at least been in like house arrest, but instead it's like, Hey, no harm, no foul until Shran's girlfriend dies. And now Shran has to be pulled out of like, I want a better tomorrow to you killed my wife. (laughs) It's a hard shift. Uh, Meanwhile, a couple things happening. One, uh, the, Senator who's overseeing this op on Romulus comes in and is like, I'm displeased at everything that is happening. Uh, the ship's been breached. Uh, this is supposed to be like a special ship that makes it so that we can go fuck around with drones and other people's space and it doesn't come back to us. But the fucking Vulcans find this thing. They're definitely going to know it's us. 
So, which we already know is true because Paul got a sniff of was what was happening and figured out it was the Vulcan, uh, the Romulans immediately, which was exactly what he was worried about. Right. And so, you know, he's correct in his concerns and he's like, I'm going to go about to go lie to like the Senate and tell them everything's fine, but you're going to need that fucking drone ship the fuck out of there and you're going to do it now. This drone ship because it has uh, what they need to say that it has some prototype thing that lets this modified warbird, which I thought was cool perform better than any other warbird we have out there. Like who could produce this thing and be like, you know what? This would be cool for a one-off adventure instead of just like, we should make a million of these because they're self-repairing and we can just have children pilot these like that's Ender's game and they're way (laughs) better than staffed starships. And when they get blown up, nobody dies. I did like that. He had two Riemann bodyguards and, Brief that, brief appearance. So were those bodyguards or was that like engineering dudes with them? No, those were his bodyguards. That was a shock to see them because, again, this is post Nemesis in the, the real world timeline. How was Nemesis received? Poorly. I watched Nemesis in the movie theater, but at this point, when did Nemesis come out? Uh, 2004. So it's been out. I'm, graduating from college i am absolutely at a at the, the lowest that i've ever been a nerd in my life i still saw it because it was trek but i did not go on the internet and talk about it or anything else i saw it as a movie and that was it and i moved on with life i didn't know it had the bad connotation it did or had developed until we started doing this podcast 2002 by the way not 2004 even i was rushed yeah i was super involved in college shit so Going to the Nemesis well and pulling elements out of Nemesis and bringing it into Enterprise. If you knew the movie had a bad rap, very ballsy. Very ballsy. I mean, it makes sense, but ballsy. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was cool. Uh, Their costumes looked head and shoulders better than anything else around. Yeah. Those guys stuck out like, we're money. (laughs) Everybody's like, movie budgets. (laughs) Movie budget. TNG season one budget. (laughs) So, uh, as you noted, unfortunately, Talus, the very hot Andorian lady, dies. Does not die on screen, by the way. She's she's dead, and can, they get the call. She dies oh. alone, too. Yeah. That's rough. Real rough. Um, Shran is uh, not having it. And we don't know to the degree that he is not having it until Archer's talking with the Tellarites to, like, because they're building the network. Everyone has agreed at this point to be involved. They're using Andorian communication codes. The network is set up. The plan is about to happen. Shran wants to come in and have a conversation. And in this conversation that he has, that's when you, you find out everything about his relationship with his now deceased girlfriend that you didn't already know. That she's from privilege. She chose to be in the military as a life of service. She could have had any man she wanted because she was from a scion of a basically Andorian nobility chose Shran, you know, like clearly this woman was her life. It was his life, right? Like uh, he, he fucking loved this chick and you think he's about to get a gun out. Archer fastest draw in the West, right? Gets his fucking hand into the, the holster where he thinks the weapon's coming from and it's no, it's a flask. We get some great Andorian detail of apparently when you're an Andorian, if you die in service, it's traditional to take your blood 
He doesn't say blade. He says parts of, which makes me think that there's some real gnarly earlobe necklaces out there. On the ice, on the ice in Andoria, she get he's got this vial of her blood, and you don't know exactly where this is going until he grabs the hand of the guy who is responsible and pours the blood on it, and it's like couldn't be more clear where he's going at this point, and essentially says, "You're going to fight me to the death, or this alliance is over." There must there must be a price paid for this. We're gonna do some ritual fighting. There we there was a scene uh, early where Archer and uh, Shran are in buddy buddy mode, and uh, Shran is like, "Oh, did you serve on all these vessels?" He's like, "No, that's the whole history of the name Enterprise." Um, and then Shran's like, "You know, maybe when I you know." Uh, more ships will become to be named after our ships for the roles they play. He was in the Kamara, right? Yeah. Kumari. Yeah. Are there any Federation ships named that? Yes. I mean, it's always been like background stuff, book stuff. There hasn't ever oh, been anything okay. on TV, but there, there, someone picked up on that and paid it forward that there's Federation ships named the Kumari. Cool. Um, uh, yeah, we're going to do some ritual fighting. Here's these gnarly ass looking uh, ice picks that uh, also have face cutting parts. And uh, I'm going <laughs> to fuck this hell right up. And it's this real um, Picard level. Uh, go fuck yourself problem where just there's a million ways to mess up. And Archer comes up with the one way to succeed, which is the only way that this can possibly not tank what we're doing is if I put my own life on the line because even if I fail whatever clever little plan I have Starfleet will not pull out of this alliance and things will not fall apart so luckily in classic Star Trek fashion uh, the fight to the death has a substitute clause which they're able to evoke meanwhile you got Hoshi and Mayweather they're just desperate for places to shove Mayweather they're like we had Mayweather as a fighting dude which why wasn't Mayweather the substitute (laughs) Because I don't think they wanted to straight up turn him into a Mandingo fighter by have like chain him to this man and have him fight to the death. Here's <laughs> like, what we're gonna do. This uh, is not this Archer. is not Django Unchained. I don't think you want to do that. Archer's gonna show up uh, and Shran and say, "No, I know about the substitution clause. Oh, the ambassador's gonna fight me instead of his dog face uh, underling. No, don't tell me you're the substitute. Oh, I'm not. And then Mayweather walks in. And then fucking Shran looks like, fuck. He just starts taking his shirt off right in front of him. Hey, you know what? He just starts I like, like, I barely knew that woman. We're not going to do this. How dare you bring this, <laughs> this beast? This <laughs> Adonis in here. Um, uh, yeah. So initially so, they're so, like, so they're desperate for like, where do we shove Mayweather? And, you know, he's been a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And they're like, what if? What if Mayweather demonstrates he can read? That's something we've never really had. <laughs> We've never seen him do book things before. And actually, didn't he come up with the sensor grid along with uh, someone else, too? Yeah, with Tapal, yeah. Who knew he was so scholastic? The many faces of uh, Mayweather. So, as you mentioned, it starts with, what do we do? And that's when Archer gets the idea of, I'll substitute myself. And there's a great... I think the scene where he explains his plan to say, I'm the only one who can die. And this plan still works because if Shran fights the ambassador and Shran loses, 
the Andorians leave. If Shran fights the ambassador and Shran wins, then the Tellarites leave. If I fight Shran and I win, the Andorians leave. If Shran fights me and I lose, everyone's cool. <laughs> so I just kind of have to die. That's that's where we're at. He's so he's like half joking about it, but half serious of like, I know, like I see it. I'm the political animal. I understand I'm the expendable one here. Uh but thanks to Hoshi and uh Mayweather's research, particularly Mayweather thinking of technicalities, the most important way to win battles, they come up with a plan. And when they cut back to the fight, the plan is Archer is going to incapacitate Shran so that he can't fight anymore, which apparently means the fight thus ends without someone dying. There's a cool scene in there between Shran and Archer where Shran's like, please don't do this. I I like you. And Archer's like, no, we're going to do it. And I like that Shran doesn't back down, even though he has remorse he even he even says he can't like I have to fight like otherwise no Andorian would follow me. That Which is our that's our creed. Like I have to do this. You can punch holes in the logic. Like you, you didn't lose to the Tellarites. You lo- lost to this Romulan threat, and by dropping this thing, you're pursuing the Rom. Whatever. Uh, I like that Shran and respects Archer for going in, even though it pains him to do so. By far the weakest point of this entire episode is the belief that Archer, who is a scientist, jet pilot, test pilot, I I don't know. Again, Archer's a Mary Sue, so this is just more kindling for that. But the fact that like nice guy Archer turns out to be able to beat the shit out of a uh, ride or die 24-7 space marine. Yeah, a guy who we've been told is uh, been fighting with his weapon since he was a child, and he's he's a uh, militaristic to his core. Uh, Archer kind of he gets cut a bunch, and then effortlessly houses him and puts him in like a rear naked choke with like the chain that they have, like they're linked together with. Yeah, which well, I let me tell you what. Touch. There's two things that make the uh, the the space Americans in charge of the Federation that that makes earth in charge of the Federation. Okay. One is they're great diplomats. And two is the rest of the universe doesn't actually have access to UFC. So they don't know basic fight moves. <laughs> yes. They're like, what is this rear naked joke? Why what is this strange technique? Oh, also we found out if we grab female arms guys, mm-hmm. like yeah. unlock this technology, you just mobilize them immediately. But yeah, he he puts him in the choke. He brings the thing down. It cuts to black when it comes back. What's happened? Archer cut off one of his antenna. <laughs> yeah. And that makes it so that he can't. He's woozy. It's like if his balance is off, it technically makes him unable to fight. And that means the fight can technically be over without someone being dead. And Tran's actually very pleased with the solution. Because he fulfilled his end of the bargain. He didn't back down for a second. He fought Archer, if that's what Archer wanted to do. He definitely was trying to kill him. And then Archer found a way to end the fight without killing Shran. With respecting the the traditions of Andoria, which classic Star Trek solution. Yeah. Again, Uh, why are the humans in charge? Because of this. uh, Just speeding through what's happening over on the, uh, the probe. 
um, Reed and Archer are able to reintroduce oxygen to the bridge. Reed and Trip, uh, you mean? Reed and Trip. They are able to determine this is a prototype vessel. They have a real Prometheus moment where they decide to take their fucking helmets off in yes. the ship that's being remote controlled and trying, even if for no reason other than like it's a crash helmet. So the next time you get turned upside down and slammed into a fucking wall, you know, you don't bust your brain or whatever. The uh, Romulan attempts to give trip cancer via radiation poisoning. Uh, Reed tries to free him and ultimately like agrees to like reconnect some things to open the door trips orders of just let me die in here and you think he's real stupid for like running into what's an obvious trap without a plan b until you find out that reads reads no dummy he, he his plan b is that i set up a bomb with my phaser overloading and also i'm not going to say that's what i did because they're listening <laughs> and we should open this panel and get the fuck out of here because <laughs> this is about to blow up real good so good in fact that act the characters themselves are like astonished at how good it worked they're like you did that with one face pistol I was like i guess i blew up more than i thought we're on an alien ship i don't know how it works <laughs> like sorry was i was kind of killed i guess <laughs> if it was orville there would have been conversation i don't know if i'm comfortable having that thing strapped to my hip after all yeah Boy, Who would have that thought seems... the phaser makes a better grenade than it does a, a pistol? So that's all happening on the ship. And with the battle uh, between Shran and Archer settled, uh, the detecting grid works. They find the drone ship. They engage the drone ship. They have a bit of a forced march ending because, again, the Romulans can't actually be found out to having been responsible for this in canon. And no one can see them. So ultimately the drone ship does get away, but Reed and Trip manage to bust out of the ship out of an airlock so they can be beamed on to Enterprise. And a whole bunch of the posse shows up actually. And you see an Andorian ship, a Vulcan ship, and a Tellarite ship all arrive to try and intercept the probe that gets away. But here we all are. Why don't we talk about cooperating more in the future? Seeing all of those ships, the the Proto Federation show up in mass, and it was only like eight or ten ships or whatever. Real fucking cool. Yeah. Especially the perspective you're able to have on it because Trip and Reed are just floating through space in spacesuits as these, you know, this massive Vulcan um whatever class that is with the spherical thing pop out like kind of haunt the the area for a minute looking for where that probe went before warping back out. And they're like, Oh fuck, they lost us. And then enterprise flies in behind them. And it's like a really cool reveal. And then they kill him by transporting him in and disintegrating them. The end comes with the scout ship, having the drone ship, having returned into Romulan space. And Johnny mnemonic is revealed to in fact be, what at this point is not known to be an ANR, but we know from watching Strange New Worlds, uh, or you may know from watching Strange New Worlds, what that is. This white-skinned Andorian that looks like he's blind. What is this to be continued? Shows up on the screen, so we have more story left. More Jeffrey Combs. Um, shout out to one other thing in this episode. Uh, to Paul has a line that I really liked because it's a shout out back to TOS when he's trying to convince Archer not to fight Shran and 
taps into something that this episode ends up being about, which is Archer's destiny to be the president of the Federation. Mm. One man can summon the future is part of the line, right? Yeah, I wanted it to be a uh, Knight Rider. One man can make a difference. Well, one man can summon the future is exactly what Kirk says to mirror Spock before he leaves the mirror universe to try and convince him to rebel against the Terran empire. Mm. So neat use of a line that is a, you know, very well used in context to convey the same sentiment. Um, So shout out to whichever of our writers came up with that one. Um, That that's the kind of depth of understanding the material that you get from these two writers who have, you know, produced basically in-depth fan material before starting to write the show that they thought like, okay, nice touch here. I'm going to have the Vulcan say this line to Archer that would, that a human said to a Vulcan in a TOS episode. Uh, Archer's in a great place to negotiate this stuff again. You know, Hey, we're here. Why don't we just have the talk? Who needs Babel? We can just talk right here on enterprise. Um, also very fitting that the formation of the Federation is essentially pioneered on enterprise and why enterprise would always be the flagship of the Federation for these reasons. Right. Um, yeah, we got the Telluride ambassador who, again, who I couldn't even tell you what this fucking guy's name is. And then, Hey, here's Shran. Who's just a captain. The story I would really like to see if they had the time to tell the story is how does Shran and the people of Endoria cast off their greedy, treacherous military complex. Cause you remember the exposure that we've had to Shran's, um, Shran's leadership, that Admiral, uh, disgusted him at a core level when he was uh, in the Zindi crisis stuff. So, um, that would have been interesting. And I guess that's kind of what the journey I'd like to see him go on is as much honor and pride as he has in the national or the, the it's called the blood garter, the Imperial guard Mm -hmm. to realize that's not where the future of Endoria is and that he needs to lay that to the side and usher in the Federation. Well, you're going to, there's some of that that we're about to see with this next episode. Oh, well, Peter. Hey, perfect. So what is it? Speaking of it, speaking of speaking of the devil, uh, we're going to be going into season four, episode 14. Uh, the Anar. This is an Andre Baramis story by Manny Cotto directed by Mike Viger. We're, Gosh, David Livingston's gone. End of an era, man. Mm-hmm. Archer visits Shran's icy homeworld to find an Andorian subspecies called the Anar to determine their connection to the Marauders, destroying the ships in the region. I hope there's an opportunity for the Anar and the uh, uh, the Andorians to have a terrible virus that might kill the Andorians, but the Anar could survive and Phlox withholds the <laughs> cure. And that's a nice conspiracy. And, you know, a bunch of people die. Nice women and children and everything. Well, thank you for listening to VG, please. A heinous trip at warp five or whatever we are. Um, and with our 10 minutes hate and everything else and go subscribe to our Patreon and write us reviews and listen to us on Spotify or Google podcasts. Send us an Amazon email. Or 
or YouTube or our RSS feed, wherever, whenever. Talk to us on Facebook. Email us at vjpolice at gmail.com. Join our Discord. If you don't know what our Discord is, email me or join the Facebook group and I'll give it to you. Whatever. Interact with us more. See ya. I'm terrible at pitching our show. <laughs> it's not that, my talent. That's a secret to our sauce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>